insurance industry is the backbone of the economy. It's the reason we're able to take risks, and it's the force that helps put us all back together when disaster strikes. So in this podcast, I'm spending some quality time with key CEOs and leaders to ask them how certain world events can impact the insurance industry and how the insurance industry is impacting the world. We'll also be talking about how they rose to the C-suite. It seems like no one grows up yearning for an insurance career, but here we are. I'm Meg Green, Managing Editor of the online insurance magazine, Insider Engage, and this is CEO Perspectives. The foundation of the insurance industry is pooled risks. Insurers take on risks from their customers, charge a premium rate to do this, and when disaster strikes, they pay claims to make their policyholders whole. To stay in business, insurers must charge enough premium to cover those claims and their expenses, and ideally, turn a profit. But insurers face the difficult task of setting those premium rates before they know what the final cost will be. Our next guest has 35 years' experience in the industry and believes insurers are, at their heart, data analytic companies. But he says having the right human talent behind the numbers is key. Greg Hendrick is the CEO of Vantage Risk. He co-founded Vantage Group Holdings, the Bermuda-based insurance and reinsurance group, in 2020 with industry icon Dino Aerodynas, formerly of Arch Capital. I caught up with Greg at Vantage Risk's U.S. headquarters in the small town of South Norwalk, Connecticut, about 15 minutes from where he grew up. Meg, thanks for coming up to South Norwalk, Connecticut and seeing the Vantage uh, Connecticut offices. This is a beautiful office, and, and why did you decide to locate here? I uh, grew up in the next town, I grew up and live now in the next town of Wilton, Connecticut, and decided while I was not going to commute for sure to New York City, I wasn't even going to commute all the way down to Stanford, Connecticut, so we, we chose this as a spot, and it's worked out great for us. What do you do for fun? Oh, for fun? So, uh, first and foremost, is family. Um, uh, two boys, 27 and 21, and, and my wife, and my wife comes from a wonderful Croatian, uh, that they, they immigrated to the U.S. when she was very young, and so we spent a lot of time together uh, as family. Uh, second is uh, I am a golfer, uh, and then when I get a little bit of time left over, I still love to read a fair bit. So. And uh, can you tell me what your parents did? Sure. My father was a professor his whole life um, and at St. John's University, which is where I ended up attending. Um, and my mother mostly uh, worked in the home as opposed to out, but did spend a few years working uh, as an uh, executive assistant uh, in Milton, Connecticut. For me, it was a great uh, experience to be able to, my grandfather lived here uh, for most of the latter part of his life, and so we were able to keep the family very close-knit, all within about a couple of miles of each other. Oh, that's great. And what did your dad teach? My father taught history, which I, for a while, thought about. And then was when I went to St. John's, I was going to study, uh, sorry, studied math and was going to become a professor and ultimately changed my mind about that. What did you like about math? It's very organized, very structured. I have a very analytical mind, uh, and math really lets you use that strength and play to it. Uh, and it's not, I'm not as much of a creative type. I'm not much of a musician, not much of a dancer, not much of a, of a fictional writer, uh, but I'm certainly always very good with the numbers, and that's, that's why I gravitated towards that field of study. And how did you shift from wanting to be a professor to getting into the insurance industry? So St. John's a big part of my life, and I'm very involved with it now on the Board of Governors and a few other advisory boards. Uh, it's where I started going to, my father started teaching when I was five, so I've been there since I was five years old. 
Uh, I met my wife there, also a math major. My sister-in-law went there, all, obviously a lot of my friends uh, as well. And as we were graduating, uh, my wife and I, or girlfriend at the time, decided we were going to get married sometime soon in the course of it. And when I started to do all the math of having to go on to a master's degree and on to a PhD potentially, and what a professor would make to start, and the reality of what the business world could offer, we decided that it was better to venture out into the business world rather than, rather than teach. And what was your first entree into the insurance world? I'm like so many people in this industry uh, of my uh, age cohort. One, never planned to get into it, so it was definitely uh, an industry I knew little to nothing about. Uh, St. John's is a wonderful placement, job placement program, and so I got sent to three interviews. One was for the Parks and Rec Department, which was a wonderful job, but didn't pay anything either. One was for a life insurance company, I won't say which one, but I went to the interview and the fellow that interviewed me had stacks and stacks of green and white computer paper. For those listeners that are old enough, you used to have to consume all your, all your information on a printed report rather than a screen. And I said, that wasn't feel like it for me. And then I ended up, the third interview was AIG. I think AIG is almost a finishing school for insurance CEOs. So many insurance CEOs have come out of AIG. Certainly, yeah. And again, certainly in our cohort of, uh, of folks, there's a lot of AIG. And, and um, my co-founder, non-exec chairman, Dino Ciardano, spent time there as well. So yeah, there's a, it's a great um, company uh, at the time, it's still a great company now, but at the, great company at the time, from a development perspective, they were very, very comfortable giving a young 20, at the time, one-year-old um, actuarial work to help support a $500 million deal for uh, a car manufacturer's warranty program. And what did you like about that first taste of the insurance industry? Because it was the actuarial role, it really played to my love of numbers and analytics. And it was, you know, it, so it was 1987. Um, I won't say that spreadsheets had just been invented, but they were just really starting to get into full use uh, in the in the business world, and that was just for me like having I could write mac I could write macros and code and analyze numbers and come up with conclusions, and that just was a natural fit for me and how I think about uh, the world. So, what inspired you to start Vantage? I left uh, AxXL in February of twenty and was going to do what I think a lot of us do when we step back from a role like that. So, Dinos had called me. Uh, to say, geez, I think there's going to be an opportunity here. This this could be a major event for the industry. It could really change the dynamic. I wasn't sure when he called in February. He called me literally the day after I left to start to think about what might come next. And then we started to work through the project in the summer. I think, so, so that's that's kind of the how we got there. Um, the why it very much was around. I've been a big proponent. We've talked about the analytics. Um, big proponent that, that in the areas that we're in of specialty insurance and reinsurance, while there's a lot of analytics and going on, there hasn't been a real push to make it a core part of it. It's still a very uh, gut feel underwriting approach, which is great. But we, I felt that there'd been a lot of advancement in the insure tech areas around certain solutions that we could now do a much better job of building a company from scratch, making talent the first bedrock anchor, but data the second most important asset, and really turn that into a, a data, uh, an analytics company, which is what an insurance company is in the end. And then because COVID had forced us to embrace technology, because the last decade had had the insured tech wave and we had seen more technology coming in, there was a real opportunity to do things differently here. And that, that just excited me that, that, I could, that, I, that we could put together a company, that we could do it from scratch, that we didn't have to have legacy reserves or legacy systems. 
Um, and that was where we got going on that. And from there, it just kind of keeps keep going. And a very exciting roller coaster ride. So despite you saying that you're not creative, you've created a company. <laughs> That's very much an artistic comment, Meg. And, and maybe <laughs> maybe later you'll see me dance. You'll understand why I say I'm not the creative type. So we, can we talk a little bit about how uh, Vantage is different? Um, you've outlined uh, talent and data. I think you have, you have three pillars. Talent was, talent was always the first pillar today and into the future. In our space, it's still a lot of shared. No carrier provides the whole solution. You all share a piece of the solution and that people and connections with people make the biggest difference. And we felt that we, when we launched that a lot of that talent had been aggregated up through a lot of M&A into a handful of large carriers. And there's nothing wrong with that and they are great. they're all great companies, but we felt there was a group of people that wanted to come and build something. And so that was the first pillar was the talent. I did touch on the technology. All are set up in a way that makes sure that we're putting data as our second most important asset and that we're going to leverage that, yes, for operational efficiency, but more so for better insights for our colleagues to make better decisions. And the third pillar is creativity and curiosity. The world is changing so quickly, the riskiness is increasing, and you've just got to stay curious and creative about, about how you do things and also about how you ensure things that today as an industry, we're not that great at, particularly around the, the I mean, we're very good at the physical uh, insurance. The, the, the non-physical um, is, is a little bit harder for us and something we're still working on, but the, we certainly want to be seen as that. So people, uh, technology, data analytics, and, and uh, curiosity and creativity. I like that curiosity and creativity. I don't know of another insurance company that says it. Right on their website. Yeah, I think I think that's a little bit of a lot of us in the industry have said innovation over the years, which is true. And I, I to me, that was a just a, another way of saying it, but with a more uh, an angle of both of people and keeping the people formed. That's because how are you innovative? Well, you're curious and you're creative, um, and you can't just be one or the other. Because if you're creative but not curious, you, you kind of tend to do the same thing over and over again. If you're curious but not creative, you think about things but you never really execute on them. Um, and so we felt that was a that was a uh, nice way to say it, and it also brings in the lens that it's not just about a new insurance product or a new reinsurance product. We also want everybody to be very curious and creative about how they do things. As you look back in your experience in the industry, um, is there anything about the insurance industry that you would like to change, if you could? You've seen the recent wave of uh, movement from the admitted insurance marketplace in the U.S. to the not admitted. There's a multitude of reasons why that is, but, but one of the main reasons, and again, I'm going to focus this in the lens of the businesses that we're in, specialty insurance and, and, and reinsurance, but particularly on the specialty insurance side, you know, these are two sophisticated parties um, making a contract. The, the ability on a non-admitted basis to have that freedom of form and pricing and ability to structure a deal is invaluable to both seller and buyer of the product. And so if I changed one thing, I'd, I'd find a way to have that become an even larger part of the business. In our end of the space where we're trading with professionals, uh, be that the broker or the client, you know, love to see the industry be a little more, and the regulation of it be a little more open so that we could do things in an even greater, greater swath without the, without the regulation. That's the thing that comes to mind and what we're trying to do here. Could you give me an example of something you would want to do that uh, uh, became difficult because of regulations? One big example across everything would be, for this area of the marketplace, why not have federal regulation instead of state regulation? And that would be, to me, a big change. And then you could then say, look, once you reach a certain size of transaction or a certain complexity of transaction, 
these rules apply and allow uh, allow sophisticated buyers to interact with each other. What do you think of the explosion in the managing general agent, managing general underwriter space, the MGAs, MGUs? It's a it's a increasing uh, part of the business, and it seems to be nonstop. You know, look, there's cycles to this over the years. It grows, it shrinks, it grows, it shrinks. There's decidedly a preference from the providers of capital that they want to be in those businesses which are not as risky and volatile in terms of the outcomes and, the, and, and that, that the, 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 the same, uh, same dollar of profit is valued more in that world than it is in the risk-taking world. That has ebbed and flowed over the years. I very much think it was what I touched on at the beginning of one of our foundational businesses around talent. A lot of talent, really big companies, hard to make a difference, hard to build your own path. Oh, I can go out there into an MGA and, 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 and do that. And, and you see a lot of that business model out there where you'll bring in a five, six, eight, ten people and start a, a new business as an MGA. Um, and that's that's a, a much more exciting path for us because there's an attractiveness from a talent perspective. Um, so I think those are the two big drivers. And, and the, the third piece now it's playing out is how long does the capacity remain abundant to support those? Uh, and some, some would say that's going to stay. It's a big part of the business. Uh, I would say over time I've observed that these, the, the interest levels in it ebbs and flows from the carriers depending on how the results go. So we'll have to just watch all that as we move forward. Speaking of the results, uh, MGAs, MGUs got into trouble a number of years ago. Uh, you had big companies like Reliance and Frontier uh, were accused of giving away the pen, uh, gave too much power to those outside entities. Is there a danger of that happening again today? That's always a dangerous thing to do. I think the technology today provides for a much faster transference of information from MGA to carrier than existed back then. So that doesn't, that doesn't take you away from having a problem. It means you can find it faster and fix it faster. Uh, so I think that's, that's, that's one piece of it. The analytics that, I, you know, that we're so invested in, you know, others are doing as well. And, there again, it's the same, similar, just a slightly same um, topic, but a slightly different theme, which is, and, and people get to analyze the numbers a lot faster and a lot deeper than they used to, to be able to do. But I would say that you, there's no way I'm going to say it's not going to happen again. It, it will happen again. It just, it's, and it's usually not around an ability to pay. It's around an unwillingness uh, to pay. And there's a dispute, an argument of some kind around what somebody viewed the agreement was. And that's just, that's just the nature of, fortunately, of you know, two companies doing business sometimes, or two sets of people doing business sometimes. So I, 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 it will happen again. I just you know, you try to be very careful about how you use that uh, capacity, uh, MGA-driven capacity. You're very thorough about how you uh, gather the information, how you audit, how you interact, and you find really good partners, and you try to you know, mitigate that risk as much as you can. And, and I guess there's more danger in the casualty lines that it may take a couple years to develop. There's more danger in terms of it revealing itself. Mm -hmm. There's more explosiveness in the property lines because mm -hmm. if you write too much exposure, you can you can overwrite everything and blow the whole thing up. So there's either one either one can get you. But yes, and I would say yes in terms of the systemic names you raised before. There's definitely more of a more of a risk in the long tail lines. And so you mentioned a property catastrophe. I wanted to explore that a little bit with you. I saw um, AM Best uh, mentioned, uh, it was in the rating announcement, um, that 
you know, that you were taking some of that cat risk and putting it into the ILS space, getting it off the balance sheet, and they seem to view that positively. Um, can you tell me about that, about your mindset around ILS? When we set up Vantage, we believe strongly that they would have a large specialty insurance capability, we'd have a meaningful reinsurance capability, and then we would have uh, an ILS or a third-party capital capability. And we launched that at the inception. So at, when we started underwriting 1121, we also had a small ILS vehicle going and kept that going in 21 and 22. Obviously 21 and 22 revealed themselves to be uh, challenging catastrophe years. We just didn't have conviction that advantage after the last two years of experience that doing what we were doing, which was what you would normally do as a startup is participate in the open syndicated marketplace, taking shares as much as you could, but you were, you, we are very proud of what we've raised, but we, we had around a billion dollars of capital, so we couldn't take big lines, that we weren't gonna be able to make a difference in the marketplace. And so we set out to, to find capital that might be interested after two bumpy years of experience. Um, and we were fortunate to find capital that was really said, we do so many other things in so many different other parts of the financial marketplace. We just want to have cat risk. And we want, you know, real cat risk. We want to be as much as down 80% and up 30 to 40%. And, you know, they wanted real uh, volatility, which matched what Chris and the team were able to generate in the marketplace. And so we just sat down and looked at it and said, it just makes more sense to not do it on our balance sheet and utilize, it's a, it's a billion dollars this year, utilize that billion dollars of capacity in much smaller, larger transactions, which we could do because now we could expose a whole billion, we couldn't expose a billion dollars of capital as advantage, no way, no, no, that's not prudent, but we could expose this whole billion dollars of, of capital in the in, in advantage to, to, to write against capital. So that was the rationale behind making the change. And thankfully it's worked out great. Brokers, clients have been super supportive. Um, yes, while well, a little bit disappointed that we weren't there on, the, on some of the smaller transactions, I'm super excited to see us bring a billion dollars at a time when not a lot of new money was coming to the marketplace. Looking out uh, over the market in the, in the coming years, what do, you, what do you see happening? Well, I, I always start with what's going on in the world. I mean, to me, today, relative to when we set up Vantage, climate has, you know, I won't say the climate change is getting worse or not, but it, it's clearly another couple of data points that things are still very risky and, and, and uh, in that area of catastrophes and all alike. Um, real inflation has perked up from when we started to today. Real inflation has picked up. Now maybe we're getting a little bit of, on top of it, but it's still meaningful. Social inflation, the courts were closed for the most part. They're reopening again. I, we don't see it being, there's an acceleration. It's just a return to what was there before. So there's a real uh, uh, riskiness there. And the political landscape, however you want to take that political risk on a global basis, political risk within, within individual nations, is as high as it's been, if not higher. To me, that speaks to uh, people are very aware of risk, people are uh, reacting to that, and it, they end up, generally speaking, that triggers sales, more demand for insurance and reinsurance. What is your favorite thing about the insurance industry? I love the fact that, uh, two things, I love the fact that in the end, an insurance company is quite simply a data analytics company. We take in a bunch of information in the form of submission, we analyze it, yes, and. 100 years ago, we analyzed it just with our gut and a piece of pen, pencil and paper. Today, we do it with great support and insights from technology and data, but that's all we do. I mean, and we make a promise to pay. We don't make a microphone or a coffee mug or one of the other things in front of me here. Um, 
and we make a promise to pay them, we fulfill that. The other part about it is, generally speaking, at the end of the day, wherever the money gets from us uh, to a client, to someone that's been hurt or damaged, uh, that we put people's lives back together. And, and that, to me, I think sometimes gets lost and, and, and we don't tell that story well enough as an industry. Uh, it, that is almost always the case that in the end we are, we are helping someone or a company, which of course is an entity, a legal entity, but it's also made up of people that work there, that buy from the company. We're putting them back together after something bad has happened. And that social good has always felt rewarding to me in a way that I think we're doing a better job over the last five, ten years of describing that. Um, but we can always do a better job, particularly when we think about attracting young talent into the business. Do you think AI will have a big impact? I mean, it already is. The way we've set up Vantage and the way many people in this industry are going, that we're setting ourselves up to be able to harness data to bring AI into, into our businesses. And in our lens of Vantage, I can't speak to the other areas of the business, but in our lens of special insurance and reinsurance, we'll be giving much better insights to the decision makers in our company than we ever could have before because of the machine's ability to consume all this information. And we are generating content at unbelievable rates. And you've seen those things. You know, this year we'll generate more content than we've ever generated in the history of humankind. That means, as a, as a, as a decision maker in an insurance company, you can't consume all that yourselves and still do your job. AI can reach across all that, synthesize it for you, and give you, the human, a chance of making a better decision. That's how we think about harnessing it. I think that will just increase. I think there's a long, and again, we probably don't have enough time today, but there's a much larger societal discussion around how far do you want to go with this and how far down the road do you want to go. We see an advantage in our little uh, corner of the world is it's very much being, we're going to help our people make better decisions. Greg, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me, Meg. So what have I learned in this episode? I've seen how Greg Hendrick used his math background to become a successful underwriter and how he sees the industry evolving to write more intangible risks. I also learned that even though Greg says he's math-centric and not a creative person, he's created a company that has a different approach to taking risk. Greg has also baked alternative capital into the company's business plan to offload property cat risk to the capital markets. For more information on property casualty insurers, please visit our website, insiderengage.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. And you can register on our website to be notified of future episodes when we'll speak to another industry leader to share their insight and their story of how they rose to the C-suite. Thanks to Greg Hendrick for sharing his story with us today. For our producer, Richard Myron at Earshot Strategies, and my Delinean colleagues, Celine Frost, Kareem McGarrow, Michelle Heatherly, Emma May, Goran Panzik, and Pierre Agavala for their help and support. For Insider Engage, I'm Meg Green.